tragically, we lose air crew after air crew after air crew. Um, and all of us are literally just one bullet away. Uh, we look at, you know, some of the Marines who work for me and they fly back and you look at their aircraft and, uh, you know, just chunks of blades shot out and engines shot out and hydraulic systems. And, and, uh, it, you know, unbelievably, uh, those aircraft found a way back to their bases to get repaired and then put back in the fight. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter. Well, if you're like me, you're very focused on what is happening in geopolitical events. And of course, top of mind and, and really top of, uh, of, of everyone's attention right now is the situation over in the Middle East. Well, today we have kind of a treat for you. We have someone who has spent a lot of time over there actually in, in, uh, in combat situations uh, as a member of the U.S. Marines. And he's written a, just a really fascinating, thrilling book about it. I just finished reading. It's called Ghosts of Baghdad, Marine Corps Gunships on the Opening Days of the Iraq War. And his name is Colonel Eric Buer. Thanks for being with us today on Gray Matter, Eric. It's so great to have you on the program. Oh, thank you. I, I appreciate the offer, and I'm, I'm really glad to be here today. All right. We're going to talk about your book and also uh, pick your brain about some of the things that are going on over there right now, which are strange to many people. And of course, it's never been more difficult to get reliable information. So we're going to appreciate your, your insight there. But before we dive into that, uh, as we always do, we have some framing aphorisms uh, to, to just to start our discussion. The first is from um, someone who's uh, rather famous uh, in the Marine Corps, and that's uh, General Douglas MacArthur. Uh, who once uh, said that duty, honor, country, those three hallowed words reverently dictate what you ought to be, what you can be, what you will be. Uh, next, uh, someone who was uh, a well-known political figure during the Iraq War that you've written about, uh, and that's uh, Colin Powell, the late Colin Powell, who wrote that there are no secrets to success. It is the result of preparation, hard work, and learning from failure. Uh, next, somebody who is uh, who's you actually quote in your book, uh, and this is General James uh, Mad Dog Mattis. He said, uh, "There are hunters and there are victims. Uh, by your disciplined cunning, obedience, and alertness, you will decide if you are a hunter or a victim." And finally, from uh, the late General Norman Schwarzkopf, who was also was uh, part of uh, an Iraq War, uh, and who wrote that true courage is being afraid and going ahead and doing your job anyhow. That is what courage is. Who do we have on the show today? Well, we've said it's Colonel Eric Buer. He's a retired uh, U.S. Marine Corps, and he's written this book that we've described, The Ghosts of Baghdad, and he's a, currently a senior executive for an aviation and training company. He's also a consultant and public speaker in the areas of military and commercial aviation and global conflict. We're going to be talking with him about this today. He's a native Californian, but he spent his four years in uh, rural New England before graduating from Ohio Wesleyan University with a degree in economics. Strange training for a helicopter pilot. But after receiving a commission from the Marine Corps, 
He was trained to fly attack helicopters. And this is in large degree what his book is about. And so his deployments took him to the Persian Gulf, Somalia, Bosnia, Iraq, and Afghanistan. He later served on the staff of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs as a professor of national security strategy and policy at the National War College and as an air group commanding officer. Not to embarrass him, uh, he's also received some uh, very distinguished awards, including the Distinguished Flying Cross, awarded for actions during the global war on terror. Uh, and uh, he's uh, received a number of uh, very high-level citations, military citations, uh, for his time in the Marine Corps. So um, why don't we start off with this, uh, uh, Eric uh, or Colonel? How does somebody with a degree in economics end up flying helicopters in the Marines? Yes, great question. Uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, as a college student, at the ripe old age of 18 or 19, I, I was really looking for my next adventure. And so I ran into one of those uh, silver tongue devils called Marine recruiters. And, uh, <laughs> and they have a way of, you know, uh, really talking to you, kind of understanding who you are, what you want to do. And, uh, you know, next thing I found myself uh, with my foots on the yellow, on the, on the yellow footprints uh, with my feet there in Quantico and at officer candidate school. And, uh, it was the right fit for me. It was the right sense of camaraderie, teamwork. Um, and they gave me an opportunity to fly, something I always wanted to do. So the Marine Corps at the time was the perfect fit for me. Um, I didn't think it would be as long a journey as it was. Uh, but that's that's how I got there. And they looked past that degree in economics. I know they wanted engineers. And, <laughs> and, uh, and somehow I, I, I passed the test. So it, it worked out. Obviously, a tremendously proud history in the U.S. Marines, the uh, whole history of accomplishments and uh, various conflicts going back uh, really over 100, over 100 years. Um, what I'm interested in, uh, maybe before we get into your book, is uh, as a college student who went to the U.S. Marines, and for those of us who have seen movies like Full Metal Jacket, uh, what was that like, the exposure, the initial exposure going into basic training as a Marine? Uh, what sorts of things did you learn there about yourself and about what it means to be uh, a U.S. Marine? Yeah, wow, that's that's a correct, that's a great question. You know, first and foremost, you're not, no matter who you are, you're not as good as you think you are, right? And so you're immediately surrounded by high-level, high-performing people in my my first exposure was getting off a bus in the middle of nowhere in Quantico, Virginia. And, uh, you know, you see a Marine gunnery sergeant walking towards you and he doesn't look like he's, you know, wants to know if you need some help with anything or he wants to know how your day is going. Uh, he's about to uh, uh, he's about to indoctrinate you into a new uh, a new way of life that you could never possibly imagine. And for all the right reasons, uh, instilling a strict sense of purpose and duty and discipline. Uh, so it was a shocking change. Uh, as I rolled off the bus with kind of long hair, you know, at a track season in college and uh, just looking for, uh, you know, maybe there's going to be some classes during the day. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a it was a it was a whole new world. Part of that training, uh, as I understand it, and, and of course, this is not unique to the Marines, but probably the Marines is, a, is, is an extreme example is to some degree, it's necessary to strip away some of the. Uh, undesirable parts of your personality 
and uh, and to and to sort of uh, uh, you know ingrain in you certain principles and qualities. And correct me if this is wrong, but my understanding from reading about this experience is that in order to to train young people like yourselves uh, to to be able to deal with these life threatening, incredibly dangerous situations, in order to to be able to handle that fear. What the what the Marines are taught is not to rely upon themselves, but to rely upon their 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 you know basically their buddies, the person next to them, that, that to put their trust in that person next to them, uh, that 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 person is going to is going to be there, and that you're part of a core and a part of a group. Is that a correct way of looking at it, or does it go deeper than that? No, I think I think you said that you know it's pretty accurate. Um, it, if there's a sense of service, there's a sense of, uh, like I said, camaraderie and teamwork, you certainly don't want to let anyone down. The fear of failure outweighs you know, any need to achieve in those situations. You are there. In my case, you're there to lead. And so uh, when I go to officer candidate school, it is a massive screening process. They want to get rid of as many people as they possibly can uh, for all the right reasons. And so um, it, it leaves you with this sense of service, this, this, this kind of immense responsibility. Even as a young lieutenant, um, you know, understanding that as you're going to have to be in a position uh, to give Marines, you know, the best training, you know, the best, make sure they're the best equipped uh, and taken care of. And eventually uh, you're going to have to lead them into combat at some at some stage of your career, whether it's as a second lieutenant or a, or as a, as a general officer. Uh, so it's an immense responsibility. And I think early on you get a sense of that responsibility and it, it never goes away in, in a very positive way. Mm hmm. It's sort of an ultimate meritocracy, isn't it? Where the it really is a system that's designed to to bring out the best in young people and also to produce the best and the brightest into those leadership positions. Uh, that's that's really how the how the U.S. Marine Corps is set up. Is that right? It is. It, it's the way I believe every uh, organization should be set up. It, it's the Marine Corps is a faceless, colorless organization. Uh, I believe it is. Uh, some don't, and that's fine. Uh, but it is very much a meritocracy. If you look at the some of the senior leaders today in the Marine Corps, you'll find a wide swath of, of the country, a wide swath of the world, quite frankly. We have a lot of folks that come across the world in a desire to become Marines and U.S. citizens and, and serve not just themselves, but serve a Marine Corps in a, in a, in a new nation in, in some cases. But it, it is a meritocracy, and I believe the Marine Corps has it right in so many ways of ensuring uh, our best have an opportunity to serve at the highest levels. So, uh, as I, as I mentioned off the top, I had the pleasure of uh, of reading your book, and actually, I I, I experienced it as the audio version. And uh, as much as I'm sure the the text version is great, the audio version was uh, was kind of a thrill ride experience. And I had the impression that you you wrote it to a large degree in that way to give people a sort of a first hand experience of what it is like to to ride in one of these incredible machines under very, very dangerous circumstances. But uh, what was it like for you, you know, getting into, into flying helicopters and really being in one of these incredible machines for the very first time? Well, what was that experience like? So I remember my first, I mean, I certainly remember my first flight uh, in the Cobra. Um, and I remember my instructor, um, very patient uh, Marine captain at the time, uh, but it was exciting. You know, it's, it's, it's this continuous uh, sense of newness, this, this continuous challenges that come to you. And in this type of platform, you never 
you never arrive. You, you're never at a place where you know, certainly never, you don't know everything. You don't know every, how every situation is going to unfold in front of you or what the aircraft is going to do or not do for you. It's, it's relatively simple, the aircraft itself, uh, but the mission sets are very complex. The weapon right. systems are very complex. The sensors on board are very complex. And then integrating yourself with, with your wingmen or, or more than one or two wingmen, uh, the ground units, higher headquarters, that's really the that's really the art of it. You know, the science is, is the flying and understanding the, the, the very details of the weapon systems. But the art of that is building a team and building a team that uh, that is prepared to go out and execute and oftentimes execute without orders, just with intent, the intent of the ground commander or the intent of your higher headquarters saying, hey, this is what we're looking at doing over these next hours or days. And then as a as a leader, you go out and you execute to your best. Uh, just on those on those kind of uh, mission orders, vice very detailed um, things they expect you to do. Right. So you you flew uh, these helicopters um, during the, in two thousand and three uh, during Operation Iraqi Freedom, um, and and uh, but I maybe just for people who are not familiar with it, could you just just describe the incredible power and capacity of these machines of these helicopters in terms of how fast they fly, how maneuverable they are, and how heavily equipped they are in terms of munitions and payload. Yes. So in my case, I was flying um, a Bell uh, a Super Cobra, and uh, it's about 15,000 pounds of, of, uh, of magic. Really, it is. It's engines and wires and blades and, and uh, aerodynamics that an econ grad doesn't always grasp. Um, <laughs> and, and also in there, you've got uh, missiles, in our case, laser-guided Hellfire missiles. We still had some tow, which are wire-guided missiles. Uh, rockets, unguided rockets, carry close to 40 of those, carry up to 750 rounds of 20-millimeter cannon uh, that's, that's stored inside the, uh, the helicopter. Um, so you have a tremendous amount of firepower. Um, but that never replaces uh, the, the two brains in there. This, you've got two pilots, uh, usually the more senior pilots in the back seat. In my case, I was in the back seat, and you had a young uh, first tour pilot in your front seat, and you, you those two brains together are certainly better than one, uh, and you build that teamwork, that kind of sense of purpose, and then you share that with your wingman who has the same uh, the same capabilities as you do for the most part. And so it's a very much a building block. You learn the machines, you learn the capabilities of the machines, you meld as a crew, you meld as a flight, uh, and then you you meld as a bigger organization, uh, and, the, and you're much better prepared to execute. Yeah, whatever they throw at you. One of the, uh, I believe it's in the opening chapter of the book, uh, there's a scene in which um, things start to go wrong where, and, and I know you recall this and perhaps you could elaborate on this, but it's essentially what happens is, is you're out flying and you realize that there are other aircraft out there. And to some, and it's, at some point you discover that they're actually friendly uh that they're actually friendlies, that they, there are other helicopters um, that are flying back to base. You're heading into combat, but, you, but you're very close together. You can't really see each other. And there's this incredible concern that you're actually going to have a, a mid-air crash. You want to talk about that experience? Because I could actually feel, feel myself being in that helicopter thinking, oh, my goodness. This could all go horribly wrong. And that's kind of the sense that, that one has from experiencing your book. It's like being in this helicopter and being in that sort of dangerous situation. 
Could you describe that and, and, and also maybe explain uh, if, if that was the, the way that you decided to write the book and, and, and if so, why you, why, you, why you chose to sort of have that, that type of narrative? Yeah, so uh, um, I chose to write the book that way because it was the it was the I found it was a story number one that needed to be told. And uh, as as you listen to the story, and it's you know, it's not my story, it's it's our collective story. And that was how I wanted to write the book. Number one, and I wanted whether it was you, whether it was um, you, you had neighbors or people had you know sons and daughters and nephews and nieces who served or fathers. Uh, I wanted them to understand that. I, you have to see the story through my lens. The story is told through me, but it represents so many of us that served, uh, and in particular in these first 27 days uh, as we kicked off the war in Iraq. So I wanted the reader to get a sense of ownership early on, to have a sense of what we were thinking, how we were thinking, and then let them step into the cockpit, let them close the door, let them hear what I hear, see what I see, and, uh, and give them an opportunity that is that really rarely comes along, um, and, and and see what we demanded of these uh, of these great Americans. And I, you know, I, I serve alongside them, and they're amazing people. The opening night was uh, particularly chaotic. Uh, it was the opening night, after all. Um, I was not new to this. I'd been in the Marine Corps. I was a pretty senior major at the time. I'd had thousands of hours. Um, I was a weapons school graduate in the Marine Corps, kind of version of Top Gun, for lack of a better term. And I felt incredibly well prepared. Um, and that lasted about five minutes. And we <laughs> took off. You know, we took off. There was no moon. It was planned that way, so there was no moon. Uh, we took off before the sun had set, so our night vision devices weren't working. Uh, it was an epic sandstorm we flew into. And uh, we launched as a, a, flight of, a flight of eight, uh, four Cobras. We had a command and control uh, aircraft flying, just running up and down the border. We had three transport helicopters putting in Marine Corps force reconnaissance units at the time and still some of the, the best uh, trained Marines we have, period. And their objective was to get on the top of Safwan Hill, which is the biggest or tallest piece of uh, geography in the south of, uh, of Iraq to get eyes on the Iraqis to make sure they couldn't fire artillery or, or find other ways to clog those Marine units, ground units. Uh, pushing across the border early that next morning. And so the chaos was real. The fears were absolutely real. I, I, I lost situational awareness multiple times. And by the time we get on the target, uh, uh, we're looking for enemy, and then the enemy finds us. And we're literally just hanging on by a thread, uh, trying to make the best decisions we can. And uh, I'm, of course, plagued by making a series of bad decisions. Uh, and thank God I had my young co-pilot in the front seat. <laughs> keeping me squared away. That's just what they do. It's a team sport. And, uh, and I had a wingman, uh, incredibly patient, uh, smart, as smart as they get, that crew, uh, keeping us alive collectively. And so, so many lessons learned uh, after the first night. But what struck me, and I think it'll, it'll strike the readers, is that we landed, you know, you don't know you have confidence till you lose it. Any athlete will know that. Anyone who's participated, you know, you don't. And we landed, I think, to a man and we never discussed at the time in the back of all of our minds, we're like, we're never going to be able to go and do this again. We won't survive another night. It's, it's just a fact. Um, and so we went out the next night, we flew for almost 13 hours and every day, you just try to get a little bit better. You just try to get a little bit sharper. Mm -hmm. um, and I, was I, a, was I a, the senior guy? Absolutely. 
was it a uh, was it a complete democracy? Absolutely, everyone got a vote. Anything I did that was stupid, they told me, and they, I, I charged them to. You had to, and it it it, it just it, as you read and you and as the story goes on, and as we fight a more sophisticated enemy, it just gets more and more and more challenging. And you just every day you just got to find a way to get better. The uh, in in the book, and of course you you call it the ghosts of Baghdad, and. One of the very uh, fascinating and I would say brilliant things uh, that you that you do in the book is there's a there's another character in the book all the time that is ever present, and it's this sense of danger. And when you're describing when you're up in the air and you're flying, you know there's there's always this sense out there of of something terrible that could happen, and uh, and and that was uh, that was palpable in the book. Uh, that uh, even though you're you're flying this incredible machine and you're surrounded by uh, highly competent people whom you trust and you're supported by this whole incredible uh, group of people that make up the U.S. Marines uh, and all the tactical uh, expertise and knowledge and the sum of that, there's this unknown force that's out there all the time. Is that sort of what you meant by the ghosts of Baghdad? Is that part of it, or or did I have that have that wrong? No, I, I think you're right. And I think uh, without, you know, spoiling it, uh, for lack of a better term, it is. There's so much uncertainty out there. Um, you know, you, I may be surrounded by wingmen. I may be surrounded by a flight of four aircraft and you feel tremendously alone, tremendously vulnerable because, you know, there's more than just the weather or the Iraqis or uh, there's so many, there's so much unchance. There's so much, there's so much chance and uncertainty they can come and, and snatch you at any given time. And as you saw throughout the book, it does, you know, tragically we lose air crew after air crew after air crew. Right. Um, and all of us are literally just one bullet away. Uh, we look at, you know, some of the Marines who work for me and they'd fly back and you look at their aircraft and uh, you know, just chunks of blades shot out and engines shot out and hydraulic systems. And, and, uh, it, you know, unbelievably, uh, those aircraft found a way back to their bases to get repaired and, and then put back in the fight. So the ghost is a lot of things to me. Um, it, it, I, th- I believe as I, I'll back it up a little bit. When I did the research for this book, selfishly, very selfishly, I got to spend hundreds of hours with old friends. And that was just so rewarding for me. Um, mm-hmm. My co-pilot, my wingman, my squadron commander, and my air group commander, uh, friends of mine who were on the ground, that went on to serve, you know, multiple tours in both Iraq and Afghanistan. But in those times, I, I had a chance for some one-on-one just to kind of peel back things, just kind of peel back the, the thoughts, the emotions that they really hadn't thought about for a long time. And, uh, and very selfishly for me, they, to a, to a person, had the same feelings. But, you know, nothing scars deeper than a good, you know, than a good case of horror, right? There's nothing that just shocks you thinking there's no way we're going to find a way out of these situations. And then you find whether they're flying with you or next to you or they're on the ground, that they had those same, that same sense of dread at times. And so, again, selfishly, I felt really privileged to talk to them about it. And so the ghost means, a, it means different things to different people. And uh, it's, it's a bit ill-defined uh, and it's purposefully ill-defined. Uh, but I, I found it represented, you know, kind of where I was at that time and, how I perceive the world, and uh, and I'd seen her before, as I talked about, you know, whether it was, you know, on the streets of Mogadishu or in the mountains of Bosnia, 
uh, I knew there was more than just an enemy in the in the environment trying to get me. I it just it's out there. You know it. And right. If you don't, you've got to be aware of it because if, if not, it, it will get you. It's yeah, just, it's almost a, a palpable sense of almost good and evil of, of yeah. being in an existential crisis at all times, a real one uh, that's that's life or death. One of the other characters in the book uh that and maybe that's the wrong term for it but you you do a tremendous job of of bringing this to life is the terrain itself the experience of being in a part of the world that i think to many north americans would seem extremely inhospitable uh and uh on your website actually there's a map of the area where you were in combat and you were flying but uh but the but the terrain and the experience of being in this environment is very much a part of the book too, isn't it? It is. Um, you know, we would, we'd wake up, uh, you know, after flying all night, we'd wait to wake up in the morning after sleeping several hours and we, we get our next set of missions. And I may, I may be off. I think Iraq is about 177,000 square miles. It's the size of new England plus New York, Pennsylvania. It is a massive amount of land to right. quote, have eyes on any given time. In the south, it's 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 punctuated by deserts. Uh, a lot of that was the the kind of the water politics of Saddam Hussein to to uh, to to kind of starve out in and uh, in, in, in take the water away from the Shia in the south. Uh, and as you worked your way to the north, you could feel the coolness. Um, you know, you get out at night and you'd breathe in and you just you'd suck in some humidity and you could you could almost smell the green as you worked your way into the central areas of Iraq into Baghdad. And as you work your way north, you could begin to see mountains. And uh, and they all presented their own unique challenges. But the terrain itself was very much alive and living. Um, not, to be, not just because flying across a desert on a moonless night is one of the most dangerous things you can do. There's no horizon. You can easily fly yourself into the ground or fly yourself into your wingman or your wingman into you or to buildings or to, right. or, or to towers and and there's so many other things out there that are that are of concern to you that that are not always there when you're planning a mission. Um, but the, the the terrain, the environment for me, it, it came alive. Yeah. Those of us who are old enough to have lived through uh, that period recall it vividly. And and my sense is that um, you know there was a very strong sense that those of you who were fighting over there. Um, we're on the right side of the case. You are on the right side of history. That the that this you know Saddam Hussein uh, was an evil man, an evil dictator who was abusing his own people horribly. Who was a danger, a, a geopolitical danger to that part of the world and really to the world generally. Um, and that you were over there to to do a very important job, and that was to to protect us. Um, did you? Did you have an abiding sense of that while you were over there and, and throughout the time you were there? Because that certainly comes through in the book. I don't sense in reading your book really any sort of uh, questioning of, oh, well, are, are we doing the right thing? Uh, do we belong here? Are there really weapons of mass destruction? Uh, my sense of, of, of reading the book or listening to the book was that uh, you, know, you, you were there to do a job and you really had a strong sense that you were there uh, on the on the right side of history, uh, is that is that a correct way of, of the way you you saw things, or did you find while you were over there that you were maybe questioning uh, uh, that you know the the political reasons behind why you were there? 
No, I, I didn't. You know, I, I think as time goes on, everyone believes they have the uh, these deep insights of, uh, of reflection that they, they they understand the geopolitical world as they knew it. And, and they love to tell you, I told you so. Um, you got to remember, eight, 18 months prior was 9-11. Yeah, the country was right. at war. We were on a war footing um, very much now. What it, it, it looks like now in, in certain places of the world, we are absolutely on the right side of history. Anyone who doesn't think Saddam was an absolute brutal dictator, um, just look at some of the just look at some of the films uh, as the Bath Party took over. Uh, look at yeah. some of the mass executions. Very Stalin-esque, secret police, and his cousin Chemical Ali who would end up defending in Basra, which I talk about in the book. You know, he's he's gassing Kurds. He's gassing Iranians. Uh, don't think for a minute. Uh, don't look through this, through some type of rose-colored glasses that they were anything or he was anything but a tyrant. Um, it, it is insanity to think otherwise. We are absolutely on the right side of, of history. And I would go back and do uh, two more tours in Iraq in particular. Now, how it was handled politically you know, those are what books are being written about, and yeah. um, and those are what people are discussing now. But uh, in 2003, uh, like I said, the, the towers were still down, uh, the Pentagon was still in shambles, and and a field in Pennsylvania was still littered with bodies of great Americans. And so, to think that we would uh, uh, even question that now is, uh, for me, is quintessentially un-American, and it's just uh, tremendously disloyal to all those we called to serve in the. Uh, and I hope people realize that. Yeah. You know, one of the things that people don't realize either, and I, I read a piece um, recently by Ben Shapiro, and I, I, I want to get your take on this. And he said that, uh, you know, we have, a, we have a tendency in the West to presume wrongly that everyone else in the world sees the world the way we do. And in, and, uh, in, in Mr. Shapiro's piece, he says, you know, uh, people in that part of the world, in places like Palestine or Iraq or elsewhere, they don't see things the way we do. Uh, they have a very different view of, of life and death, uh, place different values on human life. Uh, you know, the type of, of people who will actually have children and train them to be human, you know, human explosive devices. This is These are things that are considered by those of us in the West, hopefully nearly all of us or all of us is being morally abhorrent, uh, but, but is commonplace in terms of the mindset. I got the sense from your book that uh, this was one of the difficult things about being over there and being in, in that type of a conflict is, uh, yes, so you're there to do a job and you're trained to kill, um, but also in dealing with, uh, with, with the enemy, with the Iraqi people, having an understanding that their view of life is very, very different than, than, than our own and what we're, we're, we're raised to think about in North America. Would you agree with Mr. Shapiro in that regard? Or what, what was your sense of, you know, in, in your contact with the people who were over there whom you were fighting? So I had very little contact um, in all those tours, uh, not all those, but my, my three tours there, you, you have very little interaction uh, my friends who are ground commanders, they would certainly have interaction with, uh, you know, local leaders, religious leaders, uh, community leaders uh, through their interpreters. Uh, they would have a lot more insight to it. But, you know, fundamentally, uh, from what my feedback from them was that they're, they're, it's humanity, it's people. I think right. there's some common themes and threads that 
you know, they want to raise their families and they, they'd like to think their sons and daughters are going to have a brighter future than they did. Uh, in no way would they support tyranny or repression. Uh, you know, they don't, no one wants to live under the, under the gun or the threat of violence daily. Um, it makes it difficult. And, it, and in some of those extreme environments, it's, it's difficult to break that cycle. It, it, when they tell you women aren't going to go to co- school or they're certainly not going to go to college and girls aren't going to go to school, it, they mean it. Um, it's, right. it's very, very autocratic. It's very dangerous. And so modernity has barely touched those countries. And as soon mm-hmm. as it is, and we just, just have to look across the Arab and Muslim world uh, to see when the Arab Spring came and to see, uh, in many cases, uh, the reactions of those governments, whether it's in Syria, whether it's in Iraq, or whether it's in Iran, and how they go to suppress those ideas. Um, you know, I, I don't want to go to toe to toe with Mr. Shapiro in a debate. Uh, he is uh, he is quite he is uh, quite an intellectual. And so you know, I would agree on the fundamentals that we can't expect the world to think the way we think. But I think the world still brings some fundamentals that we would all agree on um, right. as just as humans and, and the understanding of family and community. In addition to serving in Iraq, you also served in, in Afghanistan. I'm interested to get your take on. Uh, you know how the 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 American forces uh, left Afghanistan. This has uh, been a source of uh, tremendous, uh, you know, criticism uh, in terms of the Biden administration uh, and and really leaving that country in the hands of the Taliban. Um, that must have been difficult for someone with your military background to to watch unfold. It was, and I think my my feeling of disappointment. And really, a disgust is is not uncommon. I think it's probably the, the singular most common uh, reaction that any veteran had. Uh, the way we left it, how we left it, uh, was just uh, we all should be embarrassed. Uh, mm-hmm. We had people. We spent 20 years telling uh, the people of that country that we're here to stay and we care. Uh, we're not going anywhere. We'll defeat the Taliban. We'll put you in a place to be where you want to be as a nation. Uh, to raise your family, the things we just talked about, and then uh, to literally scurry away in, in the uh, under the cover of darkness, uh, as an analogy, is uh, is disgraceful. And uh, I, I, there's no one to blame except our most senior leaders who allow that to happen. And there's so many other ways. Even at the time, there were so many other voices of reason on if we're going to do this, this is how we can do it. Vice uh, backroom deals with the Taliban on. On, on, on trying to get things out of that country that really are of no value to us. The things that were of value to us were the people, the human capital, the people that trusted us and believed in us uh, that, uh, that we simply left behind to, to fall into the hands of the, of the exact people we said we would never let them fall into. So uh, yeah, it's, it's a tragedy. That, that situation in Afghanistan and the way that it was uh, handled by, uh, by, by the American leaders um, seems to have been kind of a focal point for the beginnings of instability in that region, coupled with, uh, let's say, a return to the Barack Obama-friendly policy towards Iran. Um, the, those seems to have been key uh, situations or key contributors to the uh, the instability that we're seeing in that region right now. And uh, I want to get your take on what's going on, obviously, over in in, in Gaza right now. Um, of course, this is a terrible situation in which uh, many people are are dying and being killed. Um, 
but uh, you know, there's there's so much uh, debate about this, about who's right and who's wrong in 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 the moment. For example, um, uh, Ilyan Omar, who is an American politician, uh, made a statement on, about this Gaza hospital blast uh, in the middle of the of the conflict. And of course, many people have gotten this wrong, including the Canadian Prime Minister, who incidentally gets nearly everything wrong. Uh, but what, what what are your what are your thoughts about what's going on in Gaza right now? It is a humanitarian disaster that is uh, absolutely undeniable. Um, it it falls directly uh, the blame falls directly on Hamas, uh, and that means it falls directly on the Iranians. Uh, the Iranians clearly have given long lasting support to Hamas uh, in the south. Certainly have given uh, support to Hezbollah in the north. Uh, throughout all of Lebanon and, and the factions that, of course, support the West Bank. Hamas doesn't care about the Palestinian people. They have, they have no concern for them. They're human shields. Uh, they're a punchline for kind of their, their, their messaging. If they did care, they would have stocked water. They would have stocked foods and fuel and energy, and they would have you know, worked a deal earlier on through either the Qataris or the, or the Saudis or directly to the Egyptians to get people out, um, to get civilians who want out through the South Gate. Um, they had no plans for that. Uh, their plans were, you know, they were emboldened by a lack of action by the U.S. administration, clearly as seen in Afghanistan, uh, clearly as seen throughout most of the Middle East right now. Um, clearly it was seen when we deal with even the Russians or the Chinese, a sense of weakness. Uh, it, it's, it, it doesn't mean we have to you know, have airstrikes every time something goes south. It means you have to have a coherent uh, and cohesive plan and you have to stick to it. And you have to realize right. that they only understand force often. And so we don't have to be a bully. We just have to understand we won't be bullied. Uh, right. And so very, very difficult to watch. Um, I think on a, on a very positive side from the Israelis, um, the, the level of transparency uh, their their interactions with the media, the global media, um, when the when the hospital quote bombing uh, artillery strike or airstrike happened, you know it was immediately you know being able to be disproved by the Israelis because they have real time you know they have real time targeting and real time uh, reconnaissance of pretty much the entire the entirety um, of the Gaza Strip, and they could see that those are Islamic Jihad attempting to fire rockets and misfiring rockets into their own positions and killing their own people. So I, I think on a very positive note, oftentimes the, the media can spin things. I think as time goes on uh, with media coverage there being what I see as being very transparent for the most part and the Israelis being very transparent, I think the world's going to see that um, uh, they're doing what they have an absolute right to do, defend themselves the way they have since 1948. And every incursion that's been designed to literally for, to their sworn enemies who say they're going to wipe them off the face of the earth. Um, right. Whether we believe that or not, if I was an Israeli, I would have to take that threat incredibly seriously, considering what they have uh, just done to us. Mm -hmm. What one of the one other uh, brilliant uh, American commentators who is not a military man, but uh, I, I'm interested to get your take on this is Dr. Thomas Sowell. Uh, of, Stan of Stanford and uh, Hoover, uh, the, the, the Hoover Foundation. And he said something very interesting about the UN and its role in perhaps uh, doing harm in terms of protracting and, 
and uh, in, so, in some cases, uh, creating an environment where these types of attacks by Hamas um, are, 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 let's say, uh, less risky than they would be. He used the example, for example, going back to when Carthage attacked Rome and, uh, and they risked ultimate destruction and they ultimately suffered destruction. The, the same is true of the Nazis in 1939. When they waged war in the rest of the world, they ultimately, at, in 1945, Germany uh, was left in ruins. Well, today, because of the UN's sort of meddling in things and uh, imposing pressure to, to create ceasefires and things like that, um, it, 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 what Seoul says is he, he says it creates an environment in which uh, groups like Hamas will, uh, will risk attacking a much more powerful foe, in this case Israel, because they'll have confidence they can go in and parachute in and, uh, you know, murder people, massacre people at a music festival, and that in the aftermath, uh, they won't risk ultimate destruction the way Carthage, the way Germany did, uh, because the UN will come in and call for ceasefires. Um, and it seems to me what, what Seoul says, and I'm interested to get your take on this, that the, so the ultimate solution to this is to is to permit Israel to 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 wage war. Uh, they've been attacked, uh, and and to wage war, not not to to stay their hand or or fetter them, uh, because uh, that that is going to produce the ultimate long term solution to the problem. Would would you agree with that, or do you think that's being too severe? Well, there is a like I said, there is a serious humanitarian crisis and. You know, the, the Palestinian people, the people of Palestine and the people that are currently inside of the inside of Gaza, they, they, they need an opportunity. I, I know it's difficult. I, I can't even imagine the level of suffering they're under right now and pressure they're under. But they have to be given an opportunity to leave. They have to be given a, a free road out. And I don't know that's going to happen. Right? I, I don't think Hamas wants the population base to leave. I mean, they would. That's not. That's not who they are. They're too cowardly, right? They don't. They don't want to stand and fight. They want to hide behind um, what they consider their brothers and sisters. Um, the UN is a very. It's a very. It's a very difficult organization. Sometimes, you know, my experience with them directly uh, under the United Nations Task Force in Somalia. Uh, oftentimes, uh, we didn't know really what they stood for and who they stood for. It was very murky at times, and so. You know, often, often there would be convoys that were being taken by these same people that we were attempting to deter from doing any harm. Um, so the UN, particularly in, in, in dealing with Hamas, uh, is in a very difficult situation. They always have been a difficult situation. I don't think we should be funding that. I don't think we should be funding uh, Hamas to find new ways uh to conduct warfare against their their out their their uh their not their allies clearly but to the against the israelis um it's a funding stream that we have to find ways to get hold of whether it's through the un uh you know the qataris fund hundreds of millions of dollars to the palestinians for all the right reasons um there's really no way to check those dollars where those dollars are being spent how they're being spent where that influence is being put for me, it comes back to the Iranians. It, it is fundamentally the Iranians. Um, we just, if we can peel away the UN, we can peel away, in this case, sometimes the Qataris or the Saudis out of this. Um, it becomes Hezbollah, Hamas, and the Iranians, all paper tigers. Um, 
And that's where I see the, the Israelis having the, the most bang for their buck. Target Hamas. If they have to target Hezbollah, they're going to have to target Hezbollah because Hezbollah, within days, which I we predicted, uh, were firing rounds into the north uh, of Israel. And it's the Iranians. And the Iranians are the ones who provide, Iranians provide the training. The Iranians provide the funding. And the Iranians somehow have, have, have had this aura about them like they are somehow this uh, local hegemon or superpower. I mean, they're flying aircraft from the 70s and 80s. They don't have a relevant anything. They don't have a relevant right. Navy. They don't have a relevant Air Force. They don't have a relevant ground force. Um, and so they're, they are very much on thin ice. All of them are. Um, you know, I, Israel absolutely has the right to push back, absolutely has the right to wage war to defend themselves. Um, and, and I think if they do and if it's done in the right way, uh, all three of those will be exposed. Uh, and speaking of funding, uh, I noticed a, a piece that uh, the Biden administration was slammed by many Republicans after announcing $100 million in aid for Gaza and the West Bank. Would you agree with those commentators that, that providing that type of uh, financial aid to, to Gaza and the West Bank is, is, is really perpetuating the problem and is really... Uh, to, to, let, let's say throwing throwing uh, gasoline on a burning fire. Absolutely, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know how we can fund. How do you fund a, your your most critical ally in the Arab world, which is, is the Israelis, and simultaneously push funding? No matter how well you think you're going to be able to have some sort of checks and balances on that uh, to the Palestinians, it doesn't work. It's a mixed message. I don't know if it's appeasement uh, to some radicals we have across the U.S. that seem to get a lot of play in the press and play on the media. Um, I don't know how you can possibly do both. Um, I think right now the focus should be on the Israelis, uh, a long-term and key and critical ally in the Middle East. And uh, the rest of those uh, folks that have decided to wage war should turn to their allies. They should turn to their Muslim and Arab neighbors and brothers and sisters, and they should put their tin cup out and they should ask for funding. Uh, it shouldn't be American taxpayers doing that. that. That's a very interesting take. And the other thing that uh, is, I guess, a corollary to that is um, there's a call for for uh, uh, Gazans refugees to to be to be uh, permitted into Europe and and into North America. It seems rather strange to fly them all over the world uh, when 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 their Arab neighbors uh, could could. Uh, very easily take them in, and and of course, um, you know, culturally, it would seem that that would be a much better fit for those people as refugees. Why is it that these Arab nations don't want to help? I don't seem to want to help in terms of providing refugee status to these people, or to provide them with uh, with with humanitarian funding. It's a it's a great question. Um, it's a great question that I certainly can't answer, but um, their neighbors should be able to answer. Uh, mm -hmm. They're you know, very close proximity or, or what should be both African and uh, Middle Eastern allies that should be willing to accept refugees, um, flying them across the globe to further traumatize um, Palestinians to assimilate into America. I, I don't know there's a value add to that uh, when we're fighting our own border crises and uh, in, in currently in this country. Right. Um, I think it's, it, it shouldn't always be an American problem. Uh, we are certainly empathetic, uh, but it, it should be a regional problem. It should be, um, you know, if we have issues in North America. We help. We, we we turn to North American problems first. We like to believe, not because we yeah. don't we don't care, 
It's just that uh, they're in a region where they have very much sympathetic allies and they should turn to those allies for support, uh, financial support, uh, immigration support. It, it should be an open door for them. It becomes a lot more difficult to be empathetic, though, when you have pro-Palestinian demonstrators swarming Capitol Hill and demanding a Gazan uh, ceasefire uh, and where, you know, police have to arrest protesters. Uh, it, it seems to me a lot has been made in the United States about January 6th, but what just happened recently is at least as bad or, or worse. Um, what's your what's your take on that on that part of the picture? Uh, I think it goes to what we have. It occurs no place else in the world is the fluidity of our borders. Uh, yeah. We don't particularly screen uh, people well. It just doesn't happen. Um, the idea of political asylum has been a golden ticket. Uh, and if we think that the vast majority of those people have come to the country to assimilate, to accept American values, um, to try to live an American dream, uh, we are fooling ourselves. Mm -hmm. We have enclaves across the world uh, that uh, we know are terror-based. And we have enclaves now that are across this country. People have assimilated this country that are terror-based or have significant sympathies to terrorist organizations. Mm -hmm. And so there may be some romanticized teenagers who think, oh, they're just the poor Palestinians that are supported by this Hamas. They, it's, a, it's a veneer of understanding of, of generational struggles and, uh, and generational challenges. And it's, it's not as simply as saying, we'll put more money at it and let's bring those people to the U.S. and we'll, they'll someday see it our way. That's, it's, uh, it's ridiculous, actually. Mm -hmm. It, it's uh, and it's not a problem that's unique to the United States. So we've had very large uh, rallies like this in Canada and in cities like Toronto, Montreal, Edmonton, uh, and elsewhere. That's happening in Europe. Uh, large rallies in places like London and in France. Uh, and so uh, it really is, has become sort of a global problem. Um, it's, so that's not just confined to to Israel and the West Bank. And um, and so it, uh, it it certainly is a is a rising geopolitical issue that those of us in the West are going to have to face. Uh, so uh, we're coming to the part of the show where we, we want to wrap up and uh, turn to something called uh, that we call the reading list. Of course, your book today is featured. Uh, it's called, as we said, Ghosts of Baghdad, Marine Corps, Gunships on the Opening Days of uh, the Iraq War. Uh, and the description here is climb in the cockpit and join a marine attack helicopter pilot in this authentic and compelling firsthand account of the opening days and nights of the Iraq war. I can tell you from listening to this book, uh, that's exactly what you get. It, it is a thrilling ride. It's uh, You get to experience the sights and smells and sounds of the Cobra helicopter hanging on tight as you're hurled into the chaos of night combat operations step through an otherwise closed door and explore the emotions, physical danger, and successes that would shape a generation of av aviators. And in addition to that, you also get a sense, as you've heard from our guest, of the camaraderie, the closeness of what it means to be a Marine and, and uh, how their training bi binds them together uh, and, and really uh, uh, makes it possible for them to deal with these life-threatening, harrowing situations that really even their even their their best training could not prepare them for, but but the camaraderie and the solidarity uh, that you get a sense of in this book, that uh, as I said is very palpable, uh, is something that I think people will really will really appreciate 
especially in modern times where, you know, we seem to be so divided. Uh, the other book that I'm going to mention before I turn it over to our guest is uh, one that I had read years ago and looked at again. And uh, our guest might be familiar with this one. This book is called Low Level Hell. Uh, this is a scout pilot in the Big Red One. Uh, this is a book that uh, is uh, is about Aero Scouts of the 1st Infantry Division that had three words emblazoned on their <laughs> unit patch, low-level hell. It was then and continues today as the perfect, concise definition of what these intrepid aviators experienced as they ranged the skies of Vietnam from the Cambodian border to the Iron Triangle. Uh, the outcasts, as they were known, flew low and slow, aerial eyes of the division in search of the enemy, and uh, too often, for longevity's sake, they found the Viet Cong and the fight was on. And these were very young pilots, just like our guest, 19 to 22 years old. Uh, and they sort of invented this book as they went along. And uh, when I when I experienced your book, Eric, I was kind of reminded of this book that I'd read a number of years ago when I was in uh, university and I had taken a military history course and been studying Vietnam. I don't know if you've read that book, but I thought it was an interesting sort of companion one uh, to the one that you wrote. So turning it over yeah. to you, I wonder if you have uh, some ideas about a, a book that influenced you or, or, uh, or that you think would be useful to our viewers and listeners uh, to help, help them gain a, a better insight into what it was like for you to be over there fighting uh, in the, the Cobra helicopter in, in Iraq. Uh, or, or just the books that, that influenced you that you grew up with in your education um, or a website or some other resource that perhaps could help people gain a better understanding of the Middle East and, and the conflict over there. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, number one, Hugh Mills, uh, a tremendous, uh, I call him a mentor now to me. He wrote Low Level Hell uh, and I talked to him uh, at length, uh, very generous with his time. Um, one of the most decorated aviators in the, in U.S. history, a, a humble gentleman, uh, and I'm glad you brought up Low Level Hell, an unbelievable book, and had a big impact on me as a young officer. Um, really? I, oh, very much so, yeah. There's another book written by Alan Mack. Um, he's a retired uh, Army officer, Chief Warrant Officer 5, a special operations pilot. Uh, his book's called Razor Zero Three. And it talks about bringing the first U.S. forces uh, into Afghanistan after 9-11. And so those ODAs, uh, U.S. Special Forces ODAs that went into Afghanistan, you know, the horseback riders, you know, the horse soldiers, uh, he was the one who flew those in. Uh, great book. Another gentleman, uh, always a pleasure to talk to. Um, it's called Razor Zero Three. And two books I've just reread uh, for context. Uh, and they're kind of timeless for me. The first was Dereliction of Duty, um, and it, written by H.R. McMaster. Uh, when he was getting his graduate degree, um, he wrote this book. H.R. Uh, retired. That's a three-star. He became the National Security Advisor briefly uh, for, uh, for an administration. But great insights on the political side of the war in Vietnam. And I took so many of these insights uh again with me after having served in Afghanistan or seen how we ran things in Afghanistan. So many very dangerous parallels uh, with that. And the last book I've, re I've recently read uh, is We Were Soldiers by Hal Galloway, and, uh, which is unbelievable. And I had, I, I had a chance to meet Hal, I mean, uh, Joe Galloway and Hal Moore, uh, Lieutenant General Hal Moore retired and 
Um, and I had a chance when I was at the Command and Staff College to meet them both. I have a signed copy of the book, and uh, I reread that again recently. Um, just to rethink through small unit level leadership, uh, to look at the aviation, how aviation played a role in their Army aviation in particular, um, and then just the just the the, the sheer leadership uh, by uh, at the time Lieutenant Colonel uh, Hal Moore. Uh, it was just it's a great read. Uh, I think it's a timeless read. And so those are some books I'd recommend um, really uh, kind of uh, whetting your appetite for understanding somewhat the nature of war uh, and then things really much at the tactical level that are uh, very interesting and uh, and still very much relevant. Well, thank you very much for those selections and, and also for taking this time to be with, with us here today on Gray Matter. I know it's been a very illuminating discussion. Uh, the book, uh, for those who are interested, uh, I strongly recommend it. It's called Ghosts of Baghdad, Marine Corps Gunships on the Opening Days of the Iraq War. It's available in hardcover uh, and anywhere you buy books, including Amazon. I listen to it as an audio book, which I highly recommend. Uh, it, the, it, the narration is just wonderful. And uh, I really got, a, as I said, a palpable sense of what it was like to be flying around in these helicopters. Also, very worthwhile to check out uh, Colonel Brewer's uh, own website where he has a lot of information there, uh, some of the recent pieces that he's written, and uh, you know some really great pictures of uh, his experiences as well of the, his corps when he was over there. So if you've been fascinated by today's discussion, and I'm I'm sure that you have been, uh, please check out his book and also his website. Um, is there any other place where uh, people can find more out about you and your work, Eric? I think uh, ericbeer.com is uh, the website. I'll have information on there. Uh, if you Google me, uh, things will pop up. And certainly you would want to find a, find the book. It, like you said, it's Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Any place you want to buy or listen to or, or read books, uh, you'll find them there. Um, reach out to me. Anyone has any questions, reach out to me anytime. Uh, I'm happy to answer uh, what anyone would think would even be a mundane question. I'm, I'm happy to either answer it or point them in the right direction to, to someone who can. Well, thank you very much, Colonel. It's been our pleasure talking with you. Uh, thanks for spending this hour with us. Really enjoyed your book. I hope you write another one. Uh, and uh, if you do, I hope you'll come back and talk to us about it. Thanks for being our special guest here today on Gray Matter. Thank you, sir. Uh, appreciate it.